theyeshiva.net. learn together a uh, piece of you can hear me yeah let's learn together a piece of Gemara it's the first source in the source sheets Masechta Sanhedrin Daf Kuf Yud Amud Aleph that's Talmud Sanhedrin 110a the Gemara addresses a posik at the beginning of Parshas Kairach Vayishma Moshe Vayipal Alponov Moshe heard, and he fell on his face. What did he hear? The Torah in the beginning of Torah tells the story that Kairach staged a mutiny, a rebellion against Moshe Rabbeinu and his brother Aaron Akoyin. It was probably the greatest crisis to confront Moshe's personal position as a leader during the entire tumultuous history of the Jewish people's sojourn in the desert for 40 years. And it was an impressive rebellion. It came from Kairach. It came from uh, three members of the tribe of Reuven, Dasan Aviram, Ayn Ben Peles, plus 250 prominent men of renown, leaders, great figures, men of stature, who all rebel against Moshe and Aaron, and their message is, Rav Lachem, enough. You have taken too much power for yourself. The entire community is holy. Hashem dwells among all the Jews. Why do you exalt yourself? Why do you make yourself superior over the rest of the community? Vayishma Moshe, Moshe hears this, Vayipal Alpanov, he falls on his face. Zagdi Gemara, The words Vayishma Moshe seem unnecessary. They seem superfluous. Obviously, if you're talking to Moshe, he hears. It could have said Vayipal Alponov. Vayipal Moshe Alponov. Moshe fell on his face. What does the Pasuk mean to tell us these, when it tells us these words, Vayishma Moshe, Moshe heard? Obviously, he heard. If you're speaking to me, I hear. If I speak to you, you hear. If he fell on his face, he responded. Obviously, he heard. So from here, the Chazal, the sages derived that there was something more that Moshe heard. It's not just he heard the words that Kairach said. That's obvious. But he heard something more. Vayishma Moshe, Mashmu Hashama. What did he hear? Amar Shmuel, the son of Nachmeni, said in the name of Rabbi Yonason, Shechashdu Meyeshesish. They suspected Moshe in what would seem as literally adultery, in taking the wife of somebody, a woman who was already married to another man. That's what they suspected Moshe. They weren't just telling Moshe, you're too powerful. They were suspecting Moshe doing something completely immoral and promiscuous on the worst, lowest level. Shenemar, what's the source of this idea? The Pesach says, the Pesach says unto Hillim, David HaMelech says, 
What does Vayikanu Lamoshe Bamachana? Literally, it means they were jealous or they were zealous against Moshe in the camp. Amar Reb Shmuel Bar Yitzchak. What's Vayikanu? What were they jealous? What were they zealous? Melamed Shakol Echad Veechad Kineis Ishtoi Memoshe. This is quite a teaching, an interpretation that every single man was Mekane, his wife, from Moshe. Meaning, there's a halacha in Parshas Nosoi, known as the mitzvah, or the halachas of Saita, and the whole Mesech, the tractate of Mishnayis and Gemara is dedicated to it, Mesech Saita. Meaning, that if somebody is suspicious that his spouse is behaving inappropriately, there's something called kinui. What is kinui? Kinui means, he instructs her, he says, I do not want you to be secluded in private chambers and private quarters with this individual. It's just too suspicious, it's too difficult, it's too complex. It doesn't smell right. Do not lock yourself up in a private room with this person. This is called kinui. And if the wife disobeys, he does this in front of witnesses, disobeys. So then there's a choice. Either she can say, you know what, I want to get divorced, I had enough of this. He could say, I want to get divorced. Or, if she claims she's absolutely innocent, she goes to the Besamikdash and drinks the waters which has Hashem's name erased in the waters. If she is innocent, then she becomes healthier. If not, it, the water turns, to, turns out to be lethal. So the Gemara says, That the men were suspecting Moshe of inappropriate connections with their spouses, and therefore each man was mechanic to his wife, I do not want you privately with Moshe Rabbeinu. And therefore if they would be in a private room with Moshe Rabbeinu, even if nothing happened, but two witnesses said they're in a private room, so then he could have her drink the water in the Mishkan. This explains, Parshish Kisis, it says Moshe took his tent and he went outside of the camp, so Rashi explains, the Gemara says, why did he go outside of the camp? To disassociate so nobody should suspect him that he is spending time with anybody's spouse. This is the end of the Gemara. Comes the Kleokar on this week's Parsha, Parsha's Kairach. And he says, This statement is completely illogical. It's remote from logic. He says, I don't understand. How could we come up with and invent this idea that the Jews suspected Moshe of this great sin, of this great crime? And it was precisely in this time. The Klayakar is echoing here. The question that everybody who hears this Maimon Chazal asks, he says, you know, you suspect people sometimes in things that, they, uh, that they're close to on some level. They say a story that uh, there was a Yid, I don't know, it's a Gerish story, maybe you'll verify the details, that there was a Psayid who used to travel a lot. So uh, there were certain rumors, he was, he was doing too many business trips, too often. So there were rumors about him. So one of the Gerish Rebbe's, I think they say about the Beis Yisrael, or the Emreyemes called him in and said, you know, I'm hearing... Uh, Stuff that are not very inspiring. So he says, Ah, Rebbe, Baruch Hashem, Zoyche, that by me was Mekoyim, the Maimah Chazal, Ashrei Misha, Chajdim, Moisei, Fortunate is the man that they suspect him with something, and he's in it, innocent. It's a special schus. So the Gary Rebbe says, You know what? I think you should choose for yourself another Ashrei. Ashrei, Yoishrei, Vesecha. So it's Bleiben in the Haim. Just stay home is a better Ashrei for you. 
you suspect people in something that's connected to them. Here, Kairach comes along, Vayishma Moshe, and Moshe hears that this is what they're suspecting him of. Eishasish. I mean, how far, how low can you go to suspect Moshe? And the Gemara says that every man was Mekane, his wife, I don't want to see you with Moshe. Extremely difficult to understand what did the Chazal mean. The Klayakar says there's no source for it, there's no hint for it. How can they come up with this? So today, I want to explore with you different perspectives throughout the generations how some of the greatest dealt with this teaching of the Chazal. What did it mean? Is it literal? Is it metaphoric? Does it mean literally on a physical level? Is this a rem, is a hint? What's the connection to Kairach? Let's begin. The first interpretation is from the Malbim. The truth is that the Malbim here just elaborates on a previous interpretation that comes from the Shalah. The Shalah says this in a few places, in Parshas of Eireh, in Parshas Kairach, in the Shnei Luchas Abris, Rabbi Yeshaya Horowitz, who was the Rav of Frankfurt, the Rav of Prague, Rav in Yerushalayim, lived in the 16th century, Rabbeinu Yeshaya Horowitz. So he says this, and the Malbim elaborates on it very clearly in this week's Parsha. It's also quoted in Ayatayra by the Tzamach Tzedek. Says the Malbim, Ki bevaday loito lachshoiv, shenevuosom hi baaspaklarya hameirim mina einsoiv baatzmoi. The Malbim sees it completely as an allegorical, as a metaphor. And this is how the Shalah really sees it. They did not think that their prophecy, any, pro- any of the prophets who existed, came from what's called in Chazal Aspaklarya Hameira, a clear, luminescent point of view. Aspaklarya Hameira means a vision that is bright, that is Meira, that is luminescent. From the infinite one himself, Shazahaya Madregas Moshe. Moshe Chazal say, Nisnabe Baspaklarya Hameira, Kola Nevi'im Nisnabu Baspaklarya Sheinameira. Moshe Rabbeinu's prophecy was in a different state. His vision, his insight, his experience of prophecy transcended all other prophets in what he saw and how he saw. They thought they compared their prophecy to Moshe's prophecy or Moshe's prophecy to their prophecy. And they said Moshe's prophecy is from a much lower level. He receives his vision through an angel who receives the flow that is above him. Like the philosophers, philosophy is a hard thing and a hard word. So whether it's from the Malach or Seichel Hapoyl, which is an expression of the philosophers, the Rambam and others. would mean that they suspected that Moshe's Nevuah is a much lower nevuah than it really was. The truth is that Moshe's nevuah was Aspaklaya Meira, straight from the Ein Soif, straight from Hashem, straight from the Infinite One. Their mistake was they did not realize who Moshe Rabbeinu was in his true holiness and true greatness. Chashdu Be'eshesish, that he receives his nevuah from something you would call metaphorically the wife of a husband. The wife of a husband would be, so to speak, the one who receives from the husband. That's who he has a relationship with. In other words, he gets his nevuah not from the ain't soif. He gets his nevuah through lower madregas, lower malachim, lower angels that receive from the ish. That's the shalos and the malbim's interpretation. And this was why Kairach and others completely mistook 
and did not understand who Moshe Rabbeinu was, what his position was. They were comparing themselves to him or actually he to themselves. Comes the Maharal. And the Maharal addresses this story, this observation in the Gemara and Sanhedrin in different places. The Maharal, his name was Rabbi Yehuda Leva Horowitz. Maharal is Rabbi, Rabbi Yehuda Leva of Prague. He was the Rav of Prague, today Czechoslovakia. The Maharal was born in uh, 1520, approximately, and he passed away 1609, which in Hebrew would be, 1609 would be Shin Samachtes. Hey, I love from Shin Samachtes, a contemporary of the Arizal, a contemporary of the Beis Yosef, Rabbeinu Yosef Cairo, passed away around a century before the Baal Shem Tov was born, just to give it context. The Maharal, as you know, was one of the greatest thinkers of his day, and his Svarim are still studied quite in depth, and they're very complex, they're very difficult. And it's interesting that the Maharal addresses this in five places, I believe. In five different places, and he gives different interpretations. He gives at least three different interpretations. Let's study the interpretations of the Maharal. They're very interesting, they're very deep, and they're very fascinating. The first is in Chidusha Agadah's Babakamad Aftazayin Amid Beis. The Gemara says in Babakama there that the Jewish people suspected Yirmiya Hanavi also Chashdu Ish. One opinion is that Chashdu Bezoina, they suspected Yirmiya Hanavi of being immoral with a woman who's not married, just a harlot. And another opinion is no, he went to a married woman. Here again, the question is Yirmiya Hanavi was such a great prophet and a holy man, how can they do this? So this is the Gemara in Babakama Tazayin, and this is where the Maharal gives his first perspective in his Chidusha Agadis, his commentary to Gemara Masechta Babakama, known as Chidusha Agadis Maharal. Zog the Maharal, we'll learn it inside, I quote, V'day, you should know, Higam al Amru They said this not only about Jeremiah, Yermia, they said it also about Moshe Rabbeinu. They suspected him also of adultery. V'zeo Masha Amru Kichashdu es Moshe Rabbeinu what does this mean? Why did they say this? Zakti Maharal, a fascinating interpretation. Kiyamru, they said, Kiklal Yisrael The Jewish people are married. They're connected with Hashem. Vuhu Nikra Baal Yisrael. Hashem is considered the husband, the Baal of every single Jew. The Hainu El Haklal. Hashem is the Baal of Yisrael, of the whole Klal, of the entire body of the Jewish people. There's no point in having an individual man who becomes the prophet, who becomes the source of inspiration for Klal Yisrael. Hashem is the husband and the energy and married to Klal Yisrael. That's why Kairach tells Moshe, they tell Moshe, Rashi says on the Pasa, why do you hold yourself superior? Everybody, Rashi says, heard from Hashem's mouth, Anoichi, Hashem and the first two of the Ten Commandments in Parshish Yisrael. So why do you make yourself superior? All of the Jews heard Hashem speak to them. You are not the only prophets. You're not the only one who heard God speak to you. So the Maharal says, why does the Gemara associate this with them suspecting him Ba'ish They're saying, we're all prophets. We all have a relationship to God. We don't need a hierarchy. The Maharal says that's exactly what they're saying. You are snatching away. A wife has a husband already. Why are you trespassing and crossing red lines? You are hijacking. You are hijacking a wife from her husband. You are, so to speak, hijacking Klal Yisrael from God himself. 
you are becoming an intermediary, mixing into a relationship where you don't belong. This is the concept of an Eishas Ish. They didn't mean that the Maharal says literally in terms of a man and a woman. What they meant it metaphorically was when a Navi comes and he says, I am the Navi of Klal Yisrael. I am your spiritual guide. I am your spiritual source. I am your teacher. I am your mentor. You are basically hijacking the Jewish people are not allowing them to have the relationship that they are really supposed to have, which is with Hashem Himself. The same happened with Yirmiya. Yirmiya, just like Moshe, was a Navi for the whole Klai Yisrael. Other Nevi'im prophesied to certain groups, but the Gemara, the Chazal say on the Pasuk in, uh, in Parshas. Uh, in Parshas Re'ei, Hashem tells Moshe Rabbeinu that I'm going to make, in Parshas Shoftim, Navi Aki Lahem Kamoich, I'm going to make another prophet like you. So the Chazal say that's Yirmiya. He was a prophet for Klal Yisrael. Amr Shazau Eishasishki, Klal Yisrael Miyuchadim Ala Kadosh Baruch Hu V'loy Lashum Adam. The Jewish people are Miyuchad. They're designated, they're connected, they're married, they're intimate with Hashem. And not with any other human being. As great as a human being is, this is a concept of Chashduhu, just like an ish, somebody is taking a woman who's already designated to a certain man. She's not open for you. She is already connected to somebody. And you intervened into a relationship that is inappropriate and immoral. Moshe Rabbeinu Kevayachal, according to them, and Yirmiya Hanavi, are interfering in a relationship that is sacred and wholesome. Maral says, but there was a difference. By Yirmiya, there's a debate in the Gemara if he was considered, if they were, if they were suspicious of Eishasish or just a Zaina. By Moshe, there's no two opinions. Why? So the Maral explains that he says as follows. By Yirmiya Hanavi, the Jewish people were in one of the lowest states of their history. This is the time of the destruction of the first Beis Hamikdash. Yirmiya goes with them into Golos, into exile. So this is the Jewish people in their lowest state. So the question is, can they be, be called then an Eishas Ish of Hashem? Can you say that the marriage is one, that there is a real powerful intimate relationship that somebody else from the outside is actually disturbing, destroying and violating? So that's why there's a Machleikas in Gemara. One view is, no, despite everything, there's still an Eishas Ish because the Churban doesn't change that. Actually, as the Gemara says in Masech Yuma, we spoke about it once, Dafnon Dalet, when the Gentiles went into the Heichel and the Beis they saw that the cherubs were actually intertwined, integrated with each other. And the question is, how is it that at the time of the Churban, when there should have been the great estrangement, there was the greatest unity? So therefore, they say there's still the Neshesish. Their other opinion says, no, then the definition would be Azayna, which means Yirmiya doesn't belong to this person. This person doesn't belong to Yirmiya. It's not a relationship that is appropriate because they're not, so to speak, getting married. But you can't say that he's taking away somebody from another marriage. That's the Machlaikas. But by Moshe Rabbeinu, there's no question. By Moshe Rabbeinu in the desert, this was the peak of Jewish intimacy with God, they, they left Mitzrayim, they saw Matan Torah, they experienced the presence of the Shekhinah day in and day out, here there was no question that there was an absolute intimate relationship, Madua Tisnasu Al-Kahal Hashem, why are you suddenly defining yourself as the husband of the Jewish people, they already have a husband.
This is Maharal in one place in Basakta Babakam. Now comes a second Maharal, Be'er HaGoyle, Be'er HaChamish. Maharal wrote many, many Svarim. Extremely, an abundance of Svarim. And uh, each Sefer is a priceless gem. Be'er HaGoyle is a very interesting Sefer. Maharal has a whole Pirush on Rashi called Gurari. Maharal has a Pirush on Gemara called Chidushe Agodis. Maharal has a Sefer especially on Agodis Shal Pesach, on Yitzhi Yisrael called Gvurus Hashem. He has Svarim dedicated to Matan Torah, to Ferris Yisrael. He has a Sefer dedicated to Mashiach and the Gula, Netzach Yisrael. He has a Sefer to explain enigmatic stories in Gemara. When you read Gemara, you know that in Agadus, in the stories of Gemara, there are many pieces that are very difficult to comprehend. They are outlandish. They're strange. It's hard, like this one. This is a classic one. They were Chosh with Moshe with Eish Everybody is busy telling his wife, I don't want to catch you with Moshe. How do you speak like this? How does the Gemara, this is really what the Jewish people were like? <laughs> it's very strange. So the Maharal wrote a sefer called Be'er HaGoyla. Be'er HaGoyla is dedicated to explain incomprehensible stories of Gemara known as Agodas. In Be'er HaChamishi, the, sex, the fifth explanation, fifth section, he tackles this Gemara. And here's what the Maharal says. He starts off with another Gemara, maybe equally strange, if not more strange, and actually, Rashi brings this in Parshas Bereshis. It says in Parshas Bereshis that, Moshe, that, uh, that Adam encountered Chava. After Hashem be- be made Chava, Adam encountered Chava and he said, Ah, he comes to Chava, he lives with Chava and he says, Zoysapam, finally, this time, I have a bone of my bones, an essence part of my essence, and a flesh of my flesh. And that's why it's called Isha, Ish and Isha, because they actually are one unit. Ish and Isha, the Isha comes from the Ish, the Isha is part of the Isha, that's the man and the woman. What's Zoysa Pam this time? So Chazal tell us a very enigmatic statement. Shaba Adam al Kol Adam literally had intimacy, had relations with every single animal, with every single beast, and with every single bird. He wasn't relaxed, he wasn't happy. Until he finally had a relationship with Chava. How do you explain this to your kinderlach when you learn Rashi? It's not a problem, because in yeshiva, Ba means gelept, right? Gelept, they were together, he went to the zoo. But it's a very strange, it's a, what does this mean? First of all, First of all, physically, what do you What does this mean? So obviously you understand here, Torah has different sections. There's what's called halacha. There's what's called agoda. In halacha we have a klal, the Gemara says, in Shabbos, when you open up a Shulchan Aruch and it says you have to put on tefillin every day, you have to light Shabbos candles or light Hanukkah candles or wash Negelvasa or David Mincha, it doesn't mean metaphorically. <laughs> But then there's a section, it means literally, concretely. Then there's a section in Torah called Agoda. Chazal tells it's two different sections of Torah, even though they're deeply connected. Agoda are stories and homiletics. The Medrash is filled with them, and many sections of Gemara are filled with Agoda. Agodas could sometimes be understood literally, but very often they were written in code language. It was the way of Chazal wanted to convey messages through particular stories. And you have this very often, and that's the Maharal Shitta like many others, and that's how he explains many of the stories. So when you say Adam had, bah, Adam lived, let me use the word, Adam lived with every bird, with every beast, with every animal. What does this mean? And well, all on one day, on Friday, and every behemoth, every bird, obviously it's a very strange Maimachazal. What does this mean? Zokt, the Maharal. 
It doesn't mean, Khalila, heaven forbid, that Adam lay, lie, lay physically with every animal. Why? I would think, because it's quite impossible, but the morale has a better proof. Hashem already told them, you're not allowed to have relations with animals. The Gemara explains that when Hashem tells Moshe, not to eat from a particular tree, so that includes many of the basic Sheva Mitzvahs B'nai Noach, including Arayas. Arayas means forbidden relationships, and one of the most forbidden relationships is relationships with an animal, as discussed in Parshas Acherim, Parshas Kedoshim, in the Parshas of Arayas. So obviously this is a violation, not just of Torah, but of, of the Jewish Torah, but of Sheva Mitzvah B'nai Noyach that were already given, many of them were given to Adam, as the Gemara explains in Sanhedrin Dafnun Vav. So therefore the morale says, to come and brag and say this is what he did before, and, and it's not even considered a sin, obviously doesn't make sense. This is not allowed, it's forbidden. Rak Pirushoi, so what is the meaning? The meaning is something else. And here the Maharal gets in to a whole deep analysis of what's this idea, Malamit Shabal, called Behemachayavoyf. And he basically explains, Pirushay Mepnesha Adam, Hutsuras Kolhaminim, Vuhunoisan Lahem Shlemus. In the Maharal's works, as in many works of uh, Jewish philosophy and Jewish mysticism, there is two words that are used very often by the Maharal, they're used constantly. And those are the words of Chaimer versus Tzura. Literally, Chaimer means matter, and Tzura means the form of the matter. So literally, it would mean you'll have a piece of wood, and then you'll have the form that you give the wood, the Tzura, or the silver, or the gold. That's just on a very basic, literal level. There's the Chaimer, there's the actual material, the Chaimer, the material, as you would say in Yiddish, and the Tzura is the form the, the shape that it takes on, which takes a designer, it takes a sculpturer, it takes a goldsmith, a silversmith, a carpenter, etc., somebody who knows what they are doing in order to fashion it and design it. But what it really means is, on a deeper level, is the design gives it purpose. I can have a piece of wood, but a, a tree, I can't use a tree for a stender. I can't use a tree for a bookcase. I can't use a tree for a table. I can't use a tree for a chair. So the design, the tzura, really means giving it the purpose so that it could fulfill the purpose for which it is created or for which, for which you want to use it. So the tzura is not just technically you're giving it form. Tzura in machshava, in, 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 in svarim of machshava sisral, represents that which gives shape. And when I say shape, I don't only mean shape in the sense of physical shape, but also spiritual shape, conceptual shape to allow this matter to be used in a particular purposeful way. And in fact, a great tzura, a great form, is one that demonstrates the unique purposefulness of this particular chaymer. So the Maharal says, that's why, for example, in the Rambam's works, already in Mishnah and Yad HaChazaka, chaymer and tzura are often relatable to the guf and the neshama. The neshama is not the tzura of the guf, the neshama is not only the form of the body, but in many ways it is connected to the form of the body because the form of the body is such, the miracle of the body is, that it's formed in a way that each limb is exactly created and designed in a way that it is conducive to fulfill its unique and individual utility and purposefulness. The, the, and it's one of the nephloyous, one of the stupendous wonders of the, of the body of the human being and really every body, of every single creature, 
how it's perfectly and impeccably and flawlessly shaped and designed. Each aver, each limb and each organ, each vein, each artery, each sinew, each cell really, in order to be able to create and fulfill that which it's supposed to fulfill. So the, the neshama, the soul, the electricity, gives tzura. It gives shape to the body, but shape also means it gives life to the body, meaning to the body. It's not just a lifeless piece of flesh. It's not a toitish tickle flesh. It's a guf adam. It's part of a chius of a person. So the tzura is always that which gives the substance, the form, the shape, the design, the purposefulness, the sense of meaning, the sense of fulfillment, the inspiration. Choymer and tzura. Those two words are key words in the Maharal's teachings. Zok the Maharal. Ha'adam hu tzuras kol haminim. Now you understand what he means. The Adam is the tzura of all species, of every single animal. And this is a beautiful idea. The bee needs the person. The worm needs the person. The butterfly needs the person. The fish needs the person. Every single creature, every single animal, every single insect, every single mammal, every single bird, every single beast, and every chaya behemen oif in the universe is makabal. What does it get from the person? It gets from the person its tzura, its ultimate purposefulness, to be able to reveal its, its meaning in the context of a whole universe. By allowing it to fulfill its purpose, the person who has the soul, the intelligence, the mindfulness, the ability to be able to reveal the harmony in the universe, the spirituality in the universe, or as the expression of the Baal Shem, of the Koyach HaPoyel B'Nifel, the Koyach of the Poyel of the Creator in the Nifel, in that which is created. The Marabu Ma'asecha Hashem Kulam B'chach Ma'asisa. The man, the human being, is the Tzura of all the minimum of all the species. So there is a relationship. There's a relationship. The animal looks to the person. The insect looks to the person. Now, I know that the bee flying uh, around in your porch doesn't exactly come to you and say, come, I really have this special relationship with you. You could just hang out with me and I'll embrace you. The bee usually does other things. But, but, that's, but when you look a little deeper, when you understand a little deeper, the truth is that every single, every single in a way awaits, awaits uh, the person's perspective in order to be able to give it meaning. Each tzura connects to that which it is a tzura for. My soul is connected to my body. Your soul is connected to your body. Every tzura has a relationship with that which it is a tzura for. Every matter in the world has its electricity, its battery, its soul, its engine. This is the meaning. This is what Chazal means. He had a relationship. Ba. Ba means he comes. We, we call it intimacy, a relationship with every animal and every bird. It's known that essentially marriage is also a metaphor of this. Because the word nekeva comes from the word nekev, which means a cavity, an opening. So spiritually and physically, a powerful relationship is a relationship in which each spouse fills up the other person, gives shape to the other person. And again, shape here means a sense of inspiration and a sense of purposefulness and a sense of meaning. And this is the primary or one of the primary jobs of the man, the way the Maharal sees it. 
that the man is supposed to be the tzura, meaning a person who takes responsibility to fill and to saturate his better half or, or his second half or his spouse with a particular identity, a particular love, a particular trust, particular depth that he is capable of bringing into the relationship. And then the nekeva, which is the feminine, again, nekev means a cavity, an opening, is makabal the tzura, absorbs the tzura, which, by the way, is as meaningful for the tzura as much as it's meaningful for the tzura to give. To be able to absorb a tzura, to be able to create space and say, here, I am here to take you in. I'm going to give you a space that you can fill. I will become the recipient that absorbs your energy is as meaningful for the tzura as it is meaningful for the tzura to be able to have something to fill. And in many ways, this sometimes becomes a challenge in a relationship when one does not show up to receive and one does not show up to give. And the pain is sometimes not identical because the pain of a tzura not having a chaymer is not the same like the pain of a chaymer not having a tzura. And I want to explain to you what I mean because this is quite relevant. Let's say, okay, I'll give you a very, uh, maybe a foolish example. Let's say I prepare a shear, and I prepared the shear for a week, maybe two weeks, maybe a month. And the shear was announced Sunday, 9.30 a.m. on 18 Forshay Road. And I come 9.30 a.m. and nobody's here. Okay, so you say he usually comes late. But 9.40, nobody's also here. And 10 o'clock, nobody is here. I yell at Nenu. Or let's say people are here, but everybody's texting. Everybody is sleeping. Not this crowd, Baruch Hashem. Nobody texts it. Nobody sleeps. At least not yet. You know the Misa? It's a good story. You're sleeping. You're taking notes. You're not sleeping. They say there was a rabbi in South Africa. He used to give a sermon every week, Friday night. In South Africa, they give sermons. So there was a man in the front row who would always fall asleep. But you know, this was like a minig midoide doides. Hezedes, eltezedes. From the day they stepped foot in a shul, there's always certain people, the Rav gets up to speak, and they're sleeping. And here this man's name was Berkowitz. The Rav would speak, and he would sleep, and this went on for 25 years. He would open his mouth, the man would fall asleep, and he wouldn't just sleep, he would snore, which is a special level, so the whole crowd had to see and hear him sleep. That's pshat, literally. By some sermons, you could see the snoring, you could see the people sleeping. You don't only hear it. So, uh, so anyway, one 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 Friday night, the rabbi is walking up to the to the pulpit, to the lectern, to the stender to give the sermon. And on the way up, the Jew Berkowitz is already snoring. This he couldn't tolerate anymore. He gets up to the stender and he says, "Berkowitz, bishlema every week. Once I start talking, you start sleeping. That I understand." You believe I'm boring, I'm monotonous. I open my mouth, you close your eyes. I got that. But tonight, what's this chutzpah? I didn't even get up. I'm on the way up. I didn't even open my mouth. Vatslavstu, why are you sleeping already? So Berkowitz looks up, he says, because Rabbi, I trust you. <laughs> you, know, with, you know, there's no worries about it. I know exactly what's coming. Okay. So let's say I show up. A Rosh Hashiva, a teacher, a Magachir, a professor, whoever it is, prepared this whole amazing class and really worked hard on it. And there's nobody that shows up. Okay, it's a painful feeling. 
not a good feeling. Does it destroy the core of his identity? If he's more or less a healthy person, a functional person, it doesn't destroy the core of his identity. It's uncomfortable. It's not a good feeling, no question. <laughs> but it's tolerable. But what about the other way? The other way is much more painful. If a student left go of his entire schedule and put everything else on the side and opened himself up and made himself an empty vessel to be able to absorb and receive the energy. And he shows up. And he's there, as a clay rake on an empty vessel to absorb. And the teacher is looking at him and says, I'm sorry, I got to go. Or he's looking at him and texting the whole time and speaking to him. This is much more painful. Because the teacher didn't suspend himself. He wasn't mavatal himself. He prepared a class. Okay, the information stays here. It doesn't go here. It would have been nice to express it. Fine. Where did it go? It stayed here. But somebody who suspends their identity, it's really a very uh, majestic idea. It takes a lot of confidence and a lot of guts to say, I am clearing out my system. Again, I don't only mean clearing out my system biologically or time-wise. That too. That too. I always tell people, Rabbanim and this, they get up to speak. So the derech by Yidin is when you get up to speak, the first thing you say is, I don't know why they invited me to speak. I always tell them, you know, if I'm in the audience, you know what I'm thinking? I also don't know why they invited you to speak. In fact, I have a great idea. You should sit down. It's a wonderful idea. He goes on for 10 minutes how he has nothing to say. And then the better one is when they start saying, everybody before me said everything I had to say. Because there were already 45 minutes of speeches at the Sheva Brachas, or better, three hours. Everybody said what I have to say. So I have nothing to add. Okay, if you have nothing to add, you know what you do? You say, Mazel Tov! And you sit down. But suddenly, he goes on for the next 50 minutes. I thought he had nothing to add. What happened? Suddenly you had a Navua. It says that Moshe had a Navua when he was standing in front of Pada. He suddenly had a Navua. What happened? Elamai, he wasn't sincere. It was Hakstar Chaynek. What are you telling me? You have nothing to add and then you speak for two hours or for an hour or for half an hour? When you get up, if you have nothing to say and you have nothing to add, then don't add it. Don't this. So when people, when you say, uh, somebody wants to introduce somebody, so he says, this speaker will not bore you with a long speech. He can bore you with a short one too. <laughs> See, <laughs> these are the lines from my field. So, okay, so I didn't express myself. I didn't express myself. So it's, it's, it's the pain of, uh, of constipation, intellectual con- Okay. Reb Tzadik says, Reb Tzadik, he says, when you speak, the nefesh already goes out. In other words, it's better not to speak because when you already speak, you diffuse the energy. The nefesh of something leaves it. It's better to hold it in. Better to hold it in. The, the Balatanya had a son, his name was Reb Chaim Avram. He had three sons. One succeeded him, the Mittler Rebbe Reb Doivber. Third one was Reb Moshe. The middle one was Reb Chaim Avram. He looked just like his father. So Bashas says, the Mittler Rebbe passed away. There was, uh, everybody thought he should be the Rebbe. The son of the Balatanya was still alive. But he refused. So the Tzamach Tzedek, who was an Enekul, who was a grandson, became the, the next Rebbe, the third Rebbe in Chabad dynasty. Chaim Avram was a Shaskin. And once they nudged him and nudged him to speak, never. Once they said, maybe just say something from your father. Don't say your own. So by Shalashudas, he, he agreed. So the whole Olam heard, he, he's going to speak by Shalashudas, he's going to chazer from his father, the Balatanias, it was packed. So now it came the time to, for him to speak. So he looks at the Olam and he says, and that was it. He quoted a pasuk in Tehillim, I hid, my wor- I hid your words in my heart in order not to sin. 
Because the moment a person speaks, it's already not the same. It doesn't have that same authenticity. Their energy is already projected. Mila besela, mashtuke betrei, as the Gemara says. A word is worth a sela, silence is worth two. Isn't it funny that I'm talking about this? Okay, one of the paradoxes of life. So I didn't express myself, but what about the other way around? The student who opened up, opened up their mind, opened up their soul, created a cavity, created an emptiness, and say, here, this is for you. I'm being mavatal myself, I'm suspending my own ego, my own identity, opening myself up to you to fill it. And then you don't show up. So what are they left with? An empty space. An empty space. That's very painful. That's what sometimes a lot of men don't understand, that the pain that they cause to their spouses is sometimes very profound and not even intentionally. Sometimes it's unintentionally because they don't show up as the tzura that the choymer opened itself up and says, come, I'm trusting you. It's very vulnerable. To be a nekev, a nekev is very vulnerable emotionally, I'm talking about, physically too. But emotionally it's very vulnerable because why? I'm opening myself up and I'm waiting for you and I'm going to let you fill the space. I'm going to let you give my existence a tremendous sense of fulfillment and I'm going to run with it. I'm going to carry it. I'm going to hug it. I'm going to embrace it. When you don't show up, the person is sometimes left with a very deep sense of betrayal and violation that is very profound. That's what the Maharal is teaching us here. So the Tchaymer looks for the Tzura. The Tzura also needs the Tchaymer. Because when the Tchaymer absorbs the Tzura, the Tzura is also enhanced very deeply. But that's the concept of a marriage in the world of the Maharal. Very profound idea. Tzura and Tchaymer. And in many ways you have to have a little more confidence to be the Tchaymer. Because you have to suspend yourself. And only people who are very confident can suspend themselves. And the Isha has innately more confidence than the Ish. And the reason is very simple. Because the man comes from where? The man comes from uh, Ofer, from dust, from earth. The woman comes from where? From the man. So if you take a man and you trace him back, with all, with all due respect to the Ezra Sanashem, if you take a man and you trace him back to his skeleton, to his origin, what do you have? Ofer, earth. If you take a woman and you trace her back to her source, you actually have an Etzim. You have an atzimus, you have a core, which is why men cannot deal with window shopping. And many other things, it's very hard for men to deal just with existing. We have to do something in order to feel that we exist, because if we just exist, we sometimes feel like offer. That's just a secret, it's good for the Ezra's Anashim to know we have to have keys. That's why if a man doesn't have a job, it's far more debilitating psychologically than a woman not having. I know feminists would not like to hear this, but it's a truth of life. It's a truth of life. Feminists say that women need men like fish need bicycles. The Maharal did not exactly agree with this. <laughs> the Maharal didn't exactly... Men need women, men need women, and women need men. The Tzura and the Chaymer have a very deep and intimate relationship. When they each understand what they give to the other, it's a very powerful idea. It's a very, very beautiful idea. It's not one is better, one is worse, one is important, one is not important, one is first class, one is second class. That's just stereotypical uh, phraseology that ignores substance and depth. So this is the Nikudah the Maral is saying. So now let's get back to Adam and Adam and the animals. Va'amar, back to the Maral, Va'amar. So v'hamekabel atzura nimshol b'nekeva. You see the line starts b'nekeva. V'ischabru satzura la'asheru tzura loy nikra biya shalzachim anekeva. 
extraordinary words, the hischabrus, the connection of the tzura to that which you, to that which you are a tzura for, that's called bia. In chazal, it's called bia. Bia doesn't only mean bia literally in halacha, physical relationship. Bia is a concept. The zachar coming to the nekeva means the tzura approaching the chaymer, the tzura filling up the chaymer, the chaymer absorbing the tzura and flying with the tzura. The chaymer awaits the tzura and says, here, my wife is empty and I'm allowing you to fill it. I'm allowing you to fill it. And that's going to be my greatest joy. So Gemara says it's connected to this also. So, Lamisha saw Kaylee. That's what the Gemara says. It's a covenant. I'm ready to fly with you. But you have to come. You have to show up. Bia means show, showing up. You got to show up. You can't disappear into addiction. You can't disappear into depression. You can't disappear into selfishness. You can't disappear into narcissism. You can't disappear into another planet. You can't disappear uh, emotionally. If our state was a or. Okay. He says, it's true. Adam is the tzura of every creature. You go out and you look at a tree. In many ways, again, I don't mean this literally, you're the husband of the tree. What do we mean you're the husband of the tree? The tree awaits you to give it shape, to give it purpose, to give it meaning, to understand who it is, and to elevate it and inspire it. How do you do it? Maybe by studying the tree. Maybe by marveling at the tree. Maybe by nurturing the tree. By taking a fruit of the tree and saying, Baruch Hashem And suddenly you revealed where this tree comes from. How did the whole pollination process, the unique process that created this tree, you revealed the Koyach All these forms and fashions, there's so many different ways, but a person gives tzura. To the tree. And the same is true to the behemoth, to the chayah, to the oif. First of all, we learn here also about a sensitivity to the world around us. We are married to the universe. Now that sounds like a very global warming thing to say. I know that. <laughs> the generation that abolished marriage suddenly got married with the universe. But this is what the morale is telling us here. There's a very profound relationship between a human being and the entire cosmos. Including every single animal, people think that it's a Hindu chiddush to be sensitive to the worms around you. But according to here, here we see that Adam saw his job almost as a spouse, as an ish, as a tzura to the chaymer. Zak the maral. Here's the point. But this doesn't give him serenity. This doesn't give him ultimate fulfillment. In other words, yes, you're in a relationship with the world. Yes, you're in a relationship with. Global warming. Yes, you're in a relationship with greenery, your relationship with every tree, with every insect, with every beast, with every single animal. No question. But this is not the source of ultimate tranquility in a person's life. Because the person can't be compared, defined as the tzura gemura, as the complete tzura for the animal. Rakutsura miyuchedes. 
Till that point, Adam was a tzura. He had that relationship with the world. But there was no niskara There was no tranquility. Why? Because the individual identity of a person cannot have that individual intimacy with anything but chava, with anything but the woman, with, with his wife, with his spouse. True. The Adam is a tzura kololis. The human being has a type of soul that gives shape to the world. But the individuality doesn't exist there. Because man and animal are not... They're not made up of the same, of the same dough. So there is a tzura kololis, but not a tzura miyuchedes, not a tzura protis. When Adam met Chava, he says, Now the tzura doesn't just fill the chaymet in a general way. Now it's custom-made. It's tailor-made. It's an individual relationship. It's literally the hand, in the, the hand in the glove where the glove and the hand are a perfect match, so to speak. So he says, this is my etzim. This is my basar. So then the original bia with all of the creatures, it's not considered bia anymore. Because it's a tzura rechoika. It's not a tzura gemura. It's not a complete tzura. Then Adam calms down. Listen to his conclusion. If people would understand this Maimon Chazal in depth, they would say, You hear his words. They would say, all the wisdom that exists in all of the pagan wisdoms are ephes, are naught, and nothing legabe, this lightest, smallest thing that the Chazal said. If people would just take this Maimah Chazal and understand the full depth of what the Chazal is saying about Adam and the animals, they would look and see all the other wisdoms that they learn about this is ke'efes v'toyu. It's like naught in relationship to a dover kal, a small thing that our sages said. How does this come into Moshe Rabbeinu? So here, the Maharal and what you have to say is a very daring interpretation. Uses this to explain what they suspected about Moshe Rabbeinu. Because Moshe Rabbeinu was indeed a unique person. And probably you already get it in the sense that Moshe Rabbeinu was such a Jew, what you would call a neshama klolos, a collective soul. And therefore every single man, but also every single woman of Klal Yisrael, felt a relationship, a spiritual closeness to Moshe. He understood he empathized. He was there. So the Maharal is going to use this concept and apply it to what happens with Moshe Rabbeinu in an extraordinary interpretation. It brings out who Moshe Rabbeinu was in his full grandeur and majesty. Even though some rabble-rousers, of course, use this negatively. He doesn't bring the Sanhedrin, he brings another Gemara Mayit Katan, which says the same thing. The Maral quotes again the Gemara. 
People who read Gemara, they see this as a thorn in their eyes. How could anybody speak like this? Really, these are the secrets of wisdom. Everyone reads this Masechtas Gemara and says, this is, this is ridiculous, this is a thorn. In other words, it's, ich, makes me nervous, nauseating. But the Maral says, it's really a secret. And then he says, Really, this is something that I should not be explaining. Why should I reveal more than the Chazal revealed? They were satisfied to say it in cryptic words. Why should I be the party pooper? Why should I be the one to spoil the secret and start explaining things? They didn't want to explain. It's not worthy to explain. Why is it not worthy to explain? We can understand because these are very sensitive ideas, very subtle ideas. If you're not a sensitive person, if you're not... uh, Spiritually oriented, if you're a brute person, a coarse person, you can distort it, you can violate it, you can profane the edelkeit of it, the subtlety of it. I was forced to do it in order to reveal to everybody the wisdom in Torah and in every wisdom, and therefore I have to explain it. The reason the Chazal said they suspected him in having a connection to a woman who's married. The Chachamim knew the secrets of Torah and Chachm. He says, don't take this lightly. They knew who Moshe was. Back to Tzura and Chaimer. Moshe was the Tzura of every Jew. He was a soul that gave shape, purpose, inspiration, and meaning to all of the Jewish people. Chazal say that Moshe is equivalent to all the Jewish people. It doesn't just mean on a scale he has the same weight. It means much deeper than this. Shakul Moshe is not just people say on a scale he has, carries the same spiritual weight. Shakul Moshe connected Kal Yisrael means... He is the tzura of the Jewish people. Shokul Kenegel Yisrael means he carries all the Jewish people on his weight. His weight encompasses every Jewish soul. He is the tzura, he's an neshama that Hashem put into the world that relates to every Jew. In many ways, is an ish, is a husband, is a tzura that gives life to every Jew. Ve'en sofik, shahat tzura ba'meshu tzura el Obviously, if you're a tzura to something, you carry its equal weight. And if you're a tzura to the whole Klai Yisrael, you have its weight. When a person gets into this deeply, He will be able to open up many gates of Torah that are completely locked. If you understand this concept, you'll be able to understand many concealed ideas in Torah. That's why Moshe married the daughter of Yisrael who didn't come from a Jewish family. She had to convert. Where his brother Aaron marries Elisheva, the daughter of Aminadov, which is not just a Jewish family, but an extremely prominent Jewish family. He says, if you understand what I just said, you'll understand why Moshe had to choose a wife from outside of Klal Yisrael. You typhus, why? I'll tell you in a minute. Take a look another piece of the Maharal in Gvuris Hashem Perik Yutes. 
where he goes in the same gang like in Be'er Goyla, but he adds something very, very loaded. They said, Moshe doesn't have an individual Shidduch. He doesn't have a Zivug. He doesn't have an individual wife that he's, that he's good with. You know why? You know who his Zivug is? Every woman. Why? He doesn't have an individual tzura. He gives tzura to all the Jews. So that means all the men too, but all the women too. He thought Everyone felt that Moshe is deeply connected to his wife. But this wasn't true. What is the Maral saying? Maybe in simple words, what the Maral is really saying is, in many ways, I think, I think this is the truth to it. You know when you feel, one of the most painful things for a husband is to feel that his wife respects or appreciates or trusts somebody, another man, more than himself. Somebody understands her more. Moshe Rabbeinu understood each one of their wives more than they understood. Moshe could give them something that they couldn't give. Why? Because he was the Tzura Klolis of Klal Yisrael. Every Jew he can give that to. So this is where they, well, this is wrong. This is not good. So here the Maral is really connecting the literal to the spiritual. Doesn't necessarily mean literally. Means they were feeling that with Moshe Rabbeinu, there's almost no hope for this marriage. He's going into boundaries that he doesn't belong. He gets the people too well. They get him too well. They're too close. He's a tzura of every Jew. What was the truth? So what does Moshe tell right after this? Maral says, Moshe says, I didn't carry one donkey. The Maral says he's not talking about a donkey. Moshe speaks about Kairach. He says, what are they re- suspecting? I didn't carry one donkey. He says, Chamor comes from the word Chaymer. I did not carry one Chaymer. You don't understand me. Again, you misunderstanding The concept of Moshe as a tzura is completely different than you understand it in a marriage. And therefore to look at Moshe and say, He's interfering in an intimate, sacred relationship. Moshe Rabbeinu says, this is a blood libel. When you speak about Moshe being the tzura of Klal Yisrael, it's not that Moshe interferes in a relationship. If Moshe's tzura was looking to connect with an individual chaymer and replace the wife's tzura, replace the husband, then you're dealing with a very manipulative situation. And we know in history, and this is Adayimazah, that leaders of tribes often... This is a very common thing. Recently, it was also a Maisa, but in Leaders of tribes use their position to manipulate relationships, to separate people that they need to be separated because there is this trust to them and there is this complete surrender to them and therefore they sometimes do horrible, horrible things. What Moshe Rabbeinu is telling here is, what Moshe Rabbeinu is telling us here is, is telling them is, 
The tzura of Moshe Rabbeinu has to be understood as the one who ultimately gives shape to the destiny of the Jewish people, to the life of the Jewish people, to every individual marriage between the husband and the wife. In other words, the husband and the wife both feel an equal, should be feeling an equal camaraderie with Moshe Rabbeinu because Moshe Rabbeinu's job is not to interfere and to become a tzura for the choymer. Moshe Rabbeinu's role as the neshama klolis is the one who allows each neshama to function in their own optimal way, the husband as the tzura pratis, the wife as the choymer prati. So Moshe Rabbeinu, their marriage will become more powerful, not weaker. Moshe Rabbeinu, as the maral goes on to say, there remains muvdal completely. He will never, ever get close to something that can interfere. On the contrary, his whole reality, his whole mission statement is to represent something transcendent and divine that energizes each Jew in his or her particular function. Maybe you could compare it to a uh, conductor of a symphony. The conductor of a symphony doesn't say a word. <laughs> you ever saw? Doesn't say a word. Doesn't sing. Doesn't play. And macht mit der Hand. Der springt, der läuft. He's running. He's schwitzing. But he doesn't say a word. But you know what he does? You see, I used to, when I was a child, I was once talking, I asked somebody, what do they need this guy for? He's jumping, and all he does is he's bowing. After every, after every ballad, he's bowing. Well, you didn't do anything. The violinist is working hard. The drummer is schwitzing. Well, you didn't do anything. All you're doing is jumping on the stage and wiping your forehead from your sweat. You're not doing but you're getting the bows. <laughs> and you're the one being thank, thanked. But of course, when you understand how it works, you realize that without him, from music, it would turn into absolute chaos. Absolute disarray. What, but his job is not to replace a violinist, not to replace a celloist, not to replace a guitarist, not to replace a, a drummer, not to replace the one on the harp or the one on the fiddle. His job is, actually, to see them all as a cohesive whole and inspire each of them to remain loyal to the, to the, to the beat, to the dance of life. So does everyone relate to him very deeply? Yes, everyone relates to him. Does he relate to everyone very deeply? Yeah. But it's never in a way to replace them or to interfere or to supplant them and so forth. And the Maharal says, that's why Moshe could not marry a Jewish wife. He had to go outside of the Jewish people. Outside of the Jewish people because his tzura pratis, Moshe as an individual, Aaron, yeah, Moshe, not as he explains there. That's what he meant before in, uh, in, uh, in the Maral and Beira Goyle Beira Chamishi. Okay. Maral has another sefer <laughs> called Nesivus Oilam. Nesivus Oilam, Perik Dalit. He gives us another Mahalach. He brings a Gemara insight to Davdalar Amid Beis, Kol Adam Sheyesh Beigasus Haruach, a person who has arrogance. Reb Chameh Bar Chanino, Amar Reb Chameh, the son of Chanino, said, Ki Ilu Bal Kol Harayis, somebody who has arrogance. It's as though he had intimacy with all promiscuous relationships. Ksiv Hoch, it says Toyavas Hashem Kol Gvaleif. Arrogance is an abomination. Ksiv Hosam, it says in Kedoshim is Kol Atoyavas Hakel V'Goymer. So we see that arrogance is called an abomination. Promiscuity, Arias, is called an abomination. Somebody who is arrogant, it's considered as though he had relationships with all immoral relationships, with all promiscuous relationships. How could you say somebody who's arrogant? 
he lived with a bunch of people who were all, it was all promiscuous. What's the connection? Why does Torah prohibit certain relations? Through intimacy, the world connects to each other. Hashem wanted the world should become one through relationships, through intimacy. The Jewish people would not be one nation if there was no marriage with other families. Hashem didn't want we should get married to those who are closest to us. He wanted marriage to be with strangers. Because when there's marriage with strangers, there's intimacy with strangers. And then the world ultimately becomes one place that's not fragmented. An arrogant person doesn't want to connect to anybody. He's arrogant. I'm only connected to myself. So he's like, He doesn't want to connect to anybody outside of himself. Your relatives, your siblings, your parents are part of your flesh. It's a remainder of your own flesh. That's the problem. All Arayas is flesh from your flesh, and that is exactly the problem. What is the Maharal addressing here? He's giving us an absolutely fascinating interpretation about how God designed humanity and civilization to propagate. Why is it that Arayas were forbidden? Why is it that incest with one's own family members, which are forbidden in the Torah, God outlawed. What's the reason for this? Well, you say it's repulsive. It's horrible. How could you not outlaw it? What, are you gonna, a brother's going to marry a sister? A son is going to marry a mother? It's horrible. It's disgusting. Everybody understands that. But there's a reason it became repulsed. It's in our system for a reason that it's repulsive. Why is it so repulsive? So from a biological point of view, scientists will tell you it's very simple. Because embedded in every creature is... The instinct that you want to propagate and you want to propagate healthy genes. And the more you have relations with those who are outside of the immediate family, the more the gene pool will be diversified and will be able to borrow and include strengths from others and ultimately dispel weaknesses. And therefore, it's part of the trick of the biological system to propagate itself in the process known as survival of the fittest. But the Maharal tells us there's really a deeper perspective, because that itself was created, that the genes would not be as healthy if you use your own family members. That itself is by design. What's the point that Maharal is saying? He's saying that the calling to human civilization, represented by marriage, is to turn strangers into family. Really, the world is one. It's conceived in God's womb. Really, the whole world is one. But as we emerge... We become fragmented. I am I, you are you. Families by nature are one because they share the same family, they share genes, they share DNA, they, they grew up in the same environment, and physically they're connected through the makeup of their own, uh, their own bodies, their, their own their genes. That's not the Chiddush of civilization. The Chiddush of civilization is to turn strangers into family. God did not only want us to maintain our natural, native, inborn, effortless bonds and kinships. 
Families are indeed the foundation of every society, but not its ultimate destiny. Our ultimate calling is to reveal the oneness within radical diversity, to expose the truth that in our core we're all family. How do we do that? This is what every marriage accomplishes. Suddenly a man, a woman, they go outside of the family. And they become connected to a new person. And suddenly you're sharing genes and you're sharing a life and you're sharing a family and you're creating children from somebody who's completely outside of your own circle, of your own biological circle. He says that's how Klal Yisrael becomes one. Zivu creates chiburim and the chibur is with somebody outside of yourself. And that's why the Torah says no Arayis. Somebody who wants to stick to Arayis, basically he says, I can only marry somebody who is me. Me, me. But the whole point of a relationship is to create something with somebody who's outside of you. To create a relationship with otherness. To create space for somebody else. That is the drama. That is the challenge. That is the blessing of a, a beautiful relationship. It's the fact that there's a whole other family. It's interesting. You could, you, it, is, it is something to marvel on when you think about it even practically. You know, this bacha grows up in a home 18 years, 19 years, 20 years, 23 years, 25 years, 30 years, whatever it is. And then suddenly one day he belongs to a whole new family. And then one day she belongs to a whole new family. Hopefully... Hopefully it's in a, it's in a, uh, it's in a peaceful way, but when it is in a peaceful way, it's really a very beautiful idea that people who essentially were strangers yesterday suddenly now are real family. And it's family in a very tangible way, not just spiritually and emotionally, but even biologically. So the, the morale says, somebody who's arrogant, ki'ilu bal kol kulam. Arrogance basically means you don't understand the interdependence between you and other people. Arrogance basically means you live in your own cocoon, you live in your own shell. That's the concept of Arayas. The concept of Arayas means Sha'ib Sare. I marry people who look like me. In other words, I'm ready to get married to myself and only myself. The t-shirt that reads, you probably know, I'm very easy to get along with once you learn to worship me. So, call me says the Maharal. And finishes as Vizel Akina Gdoila Shayu Mekanin Moisha Va Amru Shainim Shutafim Israel Khasvashal. This is what they were telling about Moisha. He says, An Ashish is the same thing. A woman is married to somebody. How do you come and have a relation with this person? This is such a violation of boundaries and borders. It comes from the ultimate arrogance. You are so narcissistic, you cannot acknowledge that somebody else has a relationship. And therefore everything belongs to me. They say, how do you drown a narcissist? You just put mirrors on the bottom of the ocean. Everything belongs to me. If it belongs to me, why should I respect your relationship? I have no boundaries. I don't respect myself, really, and I can't respect you. I respect, I'm an arrogant person, meaning I don't respect my true self. Somehow, myself is defined by the fact that I have no boundaries whatsoever, which is also a lack of self-respect, because, and that's why I don't have other people's respect, or the, whichever way, whichever way it works. Probably comes together, one, the, the chicken, the egg, it's a shidduch. So therefore, they were saying about Moshe Rabbeinu, on the, he's so aloof, he's so aloof, he has this gasus haruach, he's so nivdal, he's so sublime, chashdu beish has absolutely no regard for the boundaries of other people, this is a new interpretation of the maral, and therefore they chashed him with harayis, specifically eish which represents that you're completely not humble and sensitive to other people. Maharal. Comes the Halekim Megala Amukas. Megala Amukas was a rov in Krakow. 
passed away 1640, just two decades after the Maharal. His name was Reb Shapiro, lived in Krakow. On his Matseva, it says that it's known that he heard Torah from Eliyahu Hanavi. And his Sefer is Megala Mukas, which means he reveals secrets. He reveals depths. Says the Megala Mukas in Koyrach, listen to his words. Koyrach balachle kaltuumma yisere shalokha. Koyrach came to argue about the extra twin that Moshe took. Shehoyse Tzipoyra eishas Moshe. Tzipoyra was Moshe's wife. Valov neskana yu. Koyrach was jealous because of Tzipoyra. Zehu soit shechashdu beishasish. That's what it means. He suspected Moshe and taking a woman that doesn't belong to him. Shalokach tuuma yisayra shaloy. Because he took his extra twin. Now with the Megala Amukas, which is written in heavy code language, you have to have a lot of background. Let me give you very briefly the background to be able to understand what the Megala Amukas is saying. Something quite fascinating. This has to do with a teaching of the Arizal about Moshe Rabbeinu that goes back all the way to Cain and Hevel. It goes like this. Very bekitza, very briefly. The Medrash says a strange Medrash in Parshish, in Parshish Shmois. When Moshe runs away from Egypt after he killed the Egyptian who was trying to beat a Jew to death, and Dosan and Aviram went to Paroi and informed Paroi that Moshe killed an Egyptian, so Paroi tried to kill Moshe, so Moshe ran away. He comes to a well in Midian and he sees shepherds harassing the seven daughters of Yisrael. He saves them, he rescues them, and he allows them to give their flock water. When they come home and their father Yisrael says, why did you come home fast? What do they say? Ish mitzri hitzilonu. An Egyptian man saved us. So he says, why didn't you invite him home for bread? And Moshe comes home and he ultimately marries Tzipoira, who's Yisra's daughter. And then Yisra gives him his sheep to shepherd. Um, Moshe Hayaroya, as son Yisra, Moshe was shepherding his flock, of the flock of Yisra, when he had the vision by the burning bush. And Hashem appoints him to become the Jewish leader. And the rest, as they say, is history. Now, the Medrash tells a story. There was a man, there was a, a, a man who was bitten by an oroid. How do you translate an oroid? A iron age of Dalit. Anybody? Not a scorpion. A scorpion is an akrov. Let's say a venomous snake. And as a trooper, as a remedy, in order not to die, he runs to the beach, he runs to the river in order to put the wound in water. As he comes to the river, he sees a child is drowning. He jumps into the water and he saves the child. child says, thank you so much for saving me. The man says, don't thank me, thank the snake. So the Medrash says, why did they tell Yisra Ish Mitzri Hitzilonu? An Egyptian man saved us. Moshe wasn't an Egyptian, he was a Jew. Because when they told Moshe, thank you for saving us, Moshe don't thank me, thank the Egyptian who was beating the Jew. <laughs> because I killed him. And because I killed him, I had to run away so I could save you. That's the Medrash. Asks the Shalom HaKadosh and Parsha Shmois. One second. If we're already thanking everybody who was involved, Moshe should have said, thank Dosan and Aviram, because they were the Moisrim. They're the ones who informed Parai. Better, thank Parai. <laughs> He's the one who tried killing me. Just like the snake. The snake tried killing the person. Parai tried killing Moshe. Moshe ran away. I mean, we're just doing every thank you in the world. The whole domino effect. I mean, go back all the way to the beginning. That's the question of the Shalom. So the Shalos says, obviously, there is a deeper meaning to this whole parsha, And that is as follows. Cain and Hevel in the Torah HaGilgulim, in the teachings of reincarnation of the Arizal, Cain and Hevel were reincarnated. Cain was reincarnated into three people. 
into uh, the Egyptian who was beating the Jew in Mitzrayim, into Yisroi, and into Kairach. That's why it says in Parshas Bereshis, Kol hoirek kayin, shivasayim, you come. Whoever kills Kayin will be revenge, will get revenge seven times. You come is acronym, Yisroi, Kayin, and Mitzri. You come. Yisroi, Kayin, Mitzri. Why is Kayin salt? Yisroi, Kayin, Mitzri. Yisroi, Koirach, Mitzri. Yisroi, Koirach, Mitzri. Why is Kayin's soul reincarnated into three people? The answer is because each soul has three dimensions generally. Nefesh, Ruach, Neshama. Naran, Nefesh, Ruach, Neshama. Nefesh represents the biological aspect of the soul that gives electricity to the body. Ruach represents the emotional identity of the soul. It gives us emotion. Neshama is the intellectual ability, the ability for awareness, for cognition, including awareness of the transcendence. The Nefesh of Kayin was reincarnated into the Mitzri, into the Egyptian beating the Jew. The Ruach of Kayin into Koirach. The Neshama of Kayin into Yisrael. That is why, that is why we understand that Kayin's soul is reincarnated into three people. Hevel's soul is reincarnated into Moshe Rabbeinu. Just like Amram and Yecheved are a Gilgul of Adam and Chava, the children of Amram and Yecheved, Moshe is a Gilgul of Hevel, and Yisroi and Kayin and the Mitzri are a Gilgul of Kairach, Nefesh Roch Neshama. Now, Kayin killed Hevel, and what happened? Hashem tells Kayin, the blood is in the earth. So ultimately, Moshe, who's Hevel, he kills the Egyptian, who's Kayin. And what does he do? He puts him in the sand. What Kayin did to Hevel years ago, now Hevel does back to Kayin, Moshe does to the Egyptian. What happens now? Once the Nefesh of Kayin, which was reincarnated into the Mitzri, that Mitzri was killed, now he could go sublimate the Ruach of Kayin. So now he runs away to Midian, where he's going to meet Yisrael. Later in Yisrael, he sends a message to Yisrael. Moshe sends a, Yisrael sends a message to Moshe. Ani chaysencha Yisrael ba'elecha. Me, your father-in-law Yisrael is coming to you. Ani chaysencha Yisrael is the acronym. Achi, my brother. Yisrael called Moshe my brother, because they were really brothers. Yisrael was Kayin, Moshe was Hevel. Ani, Chaysencha Yisrael. Ani is Aleph, Chaysencha is Ches, Yisrael is Yud. Ochi, I'm your brother. Kayin and Hevel had to make peace, and the peace was Moshe and Yisrael. What, why did Kayin kill Hevel? Here's the key. Why did Kayin kill Hevel? So Rashi brings from the Medrash Rabbah, Kayin was born with a twin sister. Oilam Chesed Yibone, Kayin married his sister. Hevel married his sister, but Hevel was born with an extra twin sister. Cain and Hevel now got into a fight. To whom does the extra twin belong? Cain said, I'm the oldest, I get two girls. Hevel says, she's my twin. I was born with two twin sisters. Chava had triplets. Cain, she had twins. With Hevel, she had triplets. Cain and a girl, and Hevel and two sisters. So Hevel said, she's mine. Cain said, she's mine. Hevel killed, Hevel was murdered by Cain because he wanted... He wanted the extra tuuma. He wanted the extra twin. That extra twin was reincarnated into whom? Into Tzipoira. So when Yisroi gives Moshe Tzipoira, Kayin is repenting. He's giving back Moshe Rabbeinu, the girl that he snatched away from him years later. And Arizal says that's why he gave Moshe all of his sheep, 
What was Hevel's vocation? Hevel was a royitzon, he was a shepherd. Cain was a farmer, Hevel was a shepherd. That's why Hevel brought an offering from the sheep, and Cain from the pishton, from the flax. When Cain murdered Hevel, he took all of his sheep. So now Yisroi gave back the woman he stole, he gave back to Hevel, to Moshe, he also gave back the sheep to Moshe Rabbeinu. Now there was one more reincarnation of Koirach in Cain. Of, of Cain in Koirach. Both start with a kuf. This was not the Neshama, this was the Ruach. This could go both ways. Moshe wanted to elevate the Ruach of Cain. But what did Koirach do? Instead of allowing Moshe to elevate it, he's Maduat Istasu al Kahal Hashem. And what happens to Koirach ultimately? He gets swallowed up in the earth. Just like Hevel was swallowed up in the earth, just like the Egyptian was swallowed up in the earth. So Yisrael ultimately becomes sublimated. The Mitzri is killed by Moshe. And ultimately, Koirach refuses to be sublimated by Moshe Rabbeinu. The Ruach of Kayin and the Nefesh of Kayin can get sublimated in this world, only in the higher world, where Yisrael himself becomes extremely close to Moshe Rabbeinu. Why is this so important? This has to happen before Matan Torah. Why does it have to happen before Matan Torah? Because the whole Sefer Bereshis is essentially a book about sibling rivalry. You ever thought about this? The whole Bereshis is about siblings fighting. The first parsha, Cain, doesn't get along with his brother. What do you do when you don't get along with your brother? You kill him. Cain kills Hevel. The next parsha, Noyach. What, are, what happens? Shem, Cham, and Yafis also don't get along. They have different philosophies of life. Different philosophies about alternative lifestyles. They have a lot of different philosophies. Let's put it this way. What's the end of the story? Cham is cursed. The next weeks, you go to Lech Lecha, you go to Vayeda, you go to Chayesara, Yishmael doesn't get along with Yitzchak. What happens? Yishmael gets expelled from the home. The next week told us, Yaakov doesn't get along with Esav. Esav doesn't get along with Yaakov. What happens? Esav wants to kill him and Yaakov has to run away. Ultimately in Vayishlach, they're going to come back together and reconcile, but ultimately they're going to go on different paths. Ad asher seira, you go to your region, I go to my region. And then Vayeshev starts a new fight, Yosef and his brothers. Now this battle ends in reconciliation, in repentance and forgiveness, but still, Yosef is the prime minister, the brothers are shepherds, and after Yaakov passes away, they still think he's going to take revenge. And Moshe has to relax his brothers and say, I will not take revenge. Yosef relax, calms down his brothers. So we see the whole Bereshis essentially is a meditation on sibling rivalry, but there is hope. In the first case, it's murder. You don't like your brother, you kill him. In the second case, he's cursed, then expulsion, then you run away from your brother, but you ultimately meet up and you part ways. And then you try to kill your brother, you throw him into a pit, you sell him into slavery, but ultimately you repent, you ask forgiveness, you come back together. So Bereshus ends on that happy note. But it's only in Shmois that two brothers actually work together. And that's Moshe and Aaron. They only they work together, that doesn't exist in Bereshus. Moshe and Aaron actually work together. Now that's a miracle. In fact, Moshe doesn't want to take the job because he feels that Aaron is going to get jealous. And Hashem says... You don't understand. Your brother will celebrate in his heart that you have the job. Now that's a chiddush. The fact that your brother is going to kiss you and say, I'm so proud of you. Okay, if he's a mensch, he'll do that. But in his heart, he's older than you. For him to see Moshe, his baby brother, 
rise to this prominence. Aaron could get a little jealous inside. He's far to mensch. We understand that. In his heart, he's going to celebrate. But the key is the reconciliation, the reconciliation, the, the reconciling between Cain and Hevel, the first two brothers. That happens between Moshe and Yisrael. Only when Moshe and Yisrael come together, Cain and Hevel make peace, can the Torah be given to the Jewish people. Torah can only be given when siblings are not fighting with each other. That's what the Megala Mukas means here. You understand what happened? He said, Moshe, you stole my wife. Which wife? Tzipoira. It's Cain's wife. That's the Chashdu Moshe Beishasish. Because Kairach was a Gilgul of Cain. Shivasayim Yukam is Yisrael and Kairach and the Mitzri and the Egyptian. And that's why Moshe says, that's why they tell Yisrael, Ish Mitzri Hitzilano. An Egyptian man saved us. Not Dosan and Avidim, not Pyre. What they meant was, because Moshe got rid of the Mitzri, which is the Nefesh of Cain, now our family could be sublimated. Ishmitzri Hitzilonu, he saved us spiritually, because now he can elevate the, ne- the, the Ruach of Cain, the Neshama of Cain, I'm sorry, which is Megulgal, which is reincarnated into, into Yisrael. Now, finally, we come to the last piece. So why does Moshe fall on his face? Okay. He hears all of this. So Moshe says, wow, you, you really built a lot of conspiracy theories about me. One mice, another mice, another mice. So he falls on his face. What does it help to fall on your face? So here we have the last source. And we're going to finish with this. It's from the Moriv Shemesh. The Moriv Shemesh, you know, is one of the early Hasidic, Sifre Hasidic, Hasidic works that was authored by Reb Kloinimus Kalman Epstein, who was a student of the Rebbe Rebbe Elimelech of Lezhensk, the Noyam Elimelech, who was a student of the Magad of Mizrich. He was actually also from Krakow, from the city of Krakow, and he passed away in the year 1823. Tovkuf Pei Gimel. Tovkuf Pei Gimel, 1823, a few decades after his Rebbe, the Noyam Elimelech. In his Sefer, Moir V'Shemesh, on Parshish Koirach, he has an extraordinary interpretation. Why does Moshe fall on his face? And in many ways, I would say, it's the Tzura and the Choymer that really give uh, shape and culmination to everything the Maharal taught us about Moshe Rabbeinu. Zok the Moir V'Shemesh. Yodua lechol bnei Yisrael. It's known to all the Jewish people. A tzaddik protects a generation. Let me explain this a little bit. How? The tzaddik, any mitzvah he does, he's learning, he's davening, he's always connecting himself with the Jewish people. He's never on his own. I'm working in the name and on behalf of all the Jewish people. Don't think it's easy. This takes a lot of toil, a lot of sweat on the tzaddik's part, to always connect with them. Very powerful words. He says, you understand that among Jews you have people who have terrible midos. 
Some of them are horrible, horrible people. And some of them are very sinful people. So by the tzaddik connecting himself with them, he, he makes himself completely vulnerable. They could schlep him down and he could lose everything. It would be like somebody who doesn't know how to swim. If you're not a lifeguard, you jump into the sea to save somebody who's drowning. And the person is extremely heavy. Not only will you not save them, you might get schlepped down with them. And here is not one person here. He's connecting himself with everybody. It's a very vulnerable state. You say, I need my own space. I need my own serenity. I need my own transcendental dvekus. Why would the tzaddik do this? It's a very serious, very seriously dangerous thing. Afal pikein. Loizoz oisan mechavavon. He loves them too much. He will not budge from his love. Loizoz oisan means he will not move from his love, from his chavivus. He will go down and connect to every Jew so that he could elevate them. Elevate all their Torah, elevate their mitzvahs, elevate their davenings, that it should ascend to become a crown on the head of Hashem. And thus he brings forth to them all the blessings of kindness and flows that are revealed. If the tzaddikim would not connect like this to the Jewish people, there would be no hope. For those who are no goodniks, why? What he's saying is that their Torah and mitzvahs on their own would not ascend because of the Kitrugim, because of the terrible prosecutors against them. Especially, they perform it without awe and love. And the Zoyar says that Torah and mitzvahs, davening, learning, without the Chilu and Rechimu, without awe and love, does not ascend. It does not ascend. They say the Baal Shem Tev once came to a shul, a particular shul, and he said he can't go in. They said, why can't you go in? He says, the shul is packed. They said, Rebbe, the shul is empty. He says, it's packed. He says, Said it's not empty. It's packed. It's empty. It says in Zoyar, that's done without yira and without ava doesn't go up. He says in this shul nothing went up. The shul is packed with Torah. The shul is packed with tefillah. The shul is packed with mitzvahs. Nothing went up. So because nothing went up, he says, the flow that comes down would end. So the tzaddikim protect them. Now the community gangs up on Moshe and they say, you are taking away power. You are usurping our power. And you killed, and Kairach, they say, You killed the nation of God. You can understand the depth of their sin. The tzaddik sacrifices his whole life to protect the Jewish people, especially Moshe Rabbeinu. His whole life he had mysterious nefesh to protect them. And what are they saying? You killed the Jewish people. It's not just they're saying something wrong. It's the, the, the depth of ingratitude. The lack of gratefulness. The rebellious the rebellion against a human being whose entire life embodied absolute unwavering selflessness and dedication. And you can just dismiss him and accuse him of trying to dominate you, repress you, control you, and then kill you. 
You understand the depth of the hate here. Alkain vayedaber Hashem al Moshe leimer. So what does Hashem tell Moshe? Hey roimu mitoycha eda hazais. Literally from the word truma, lift yourself up, separate yourself. Truma, truma means to lift up, to separate. You take part of the grain and you give it to the koyin. Truma, also in this week's parsha, you segregate it. Hey roimu pirush todimu atzmechem lamaylamehem. Lift yourself up. You don't need this. You're not part of this filth. You're not part of this dirt. These are people who are unappreciative. They completely don't get you. They're suspecting you of the worst. You, you, your whole, the whole idea that you connected to them was for their sake. Hey, Roimu, lift yourself up. We learned the Pasuk, separate yourself, I'm going to kill them and you won't get killed. No, he says, no. By you separating yourself, ultimately... They will melt away. They will seize. Why? Their channel to life will be interrupted. Because if they don't connect to you, they're severing themselves from their own source of life. It's like you disconnect from your brain. You say, my brain is a horrible guy. I hate my brain. It tries to kill me. Okay, separate yourself from your brain. Take the brain and say, I'm going to take this little dictator, this little tyrant, this little monster, who is this little piece of jello in my head who's going to control my whole life. Take it and throw it out into the garbage. The next stage is Yizgadol V'Yizgadosh, called the Chavra Kaddisha. There's no arms in it. The brain is your brain. It gives you your life. The brain is not a competitor with you. The brain is your tzura. The brain is your tzura. So he says, Hey, Roy Just go back to yourself. You are the ones who are making sure that the chiyos of the Rebbeinu Shalolims comes forth to their souls. Their souls could live like the brain. Brings forth the life to every single limb, to every single limb of the body. They'll separate from you, and therefore their chayis won't come to them. Why is Hashem saying this to them? They understood Hashem is saying, it's really up to you. You're going to be the ones who decide what to do. Because they have completely detached from you. You detach from them, the life will not be able to come to them. So Hashem is telling this to Moshe to say, you should know that this is up to you. So what did Moshe and Aaron do? Instead of going higher, what did they do? They went lower. Instead of going higher, they fell on their face, they went down. When they heard this, they didn't want to lift themselves up from Klal Yisrael. They decided to connect themselves more to the Jewish people. This is the secret of Nefilah Sapayim. After Shemayna Esra. When you reach the deepest dveikas with Hashem, what do you do now? You fall on your face. Why? Why? You reach the highest levels. Why are you falling on your face? By Sapayim means you go all the way up and now you go all the way down because you don't want to leave anybody behind. So you'll go down to the deepest abyss in order to lift up all the neshamas, even of the wicked, to elevate them. Nefilah is falling on the face. When they heard, 
what they're suspecting them of. In other words, they understood how deep the detachment is. And now the greatest chash is that what? That the Jewish people will lose their connection with Moshe and Aaron and therefore their life force. So what did they do? They said, you know what? We got to go down even lower to be able to connect to them where they are. We have to go into their space, into the abyss, to be able to connect with them where they are so that the relationship should be intact because that's how profound the love is. Because the love is so profound, it's non-negotiable. It's unconditional. And therefore, I will always connect to you. And if that means I have to go down into a much lower space, because that's the only space where you can get me, that is what Moshe and Aaron are going to do. And that's how they save the day for most of the Jewish people. So now, let's summarize the different interpretations. We started this year with a question. How could any sane human beings expect Moshe in Khalil adultery? And how can anybody understand that the Jews are busy telling their wives, I don't want to find you with Moshe Rabbeinu. I don't want you to go on a meeting. I don't want you to have a yechidus. I don't want you to be in a private chamber with Moshe Rabbeinu seeking advice. If yes, you're going to have to drink the water of Saita. How do we understand this? The Shalom and the Malbim give us the first interpretation. That they, they misunderstood Moshe's prophecy. They understood it to, they understood it to be an inferior prophecy, similar to their prophecy as Paklai Yashayna Meira. He only is Makabal from Ashes Ish from Amalach. The Maharal in Baba Kama gives us one interpretation, and that is what? That the Jewish people are married to Hashem. Chashdu Ishes, that he is getting in the way. He is interfering in the relationship with Hashem, and the same thing happens also with Yirmiyah. The question is, if by Yirmiyah was a Zayn or Eshesish. The second interpretation of the Maharal is, Adam is connected to every animal, but his ultimate connection is to Chava, because he is the Tzura of all of the creatures, but he is the ultimate Tzura only to Chava. Moshe Rabbeinu, similarly, is the Neshama Klalis of Klal Yisrael. He's the Tzura of Klal Yisrael. And therefore, just like with Adam, they say the same thing about Moshe. That he's connected to everybody because he is in some way connected to everybody. He does give everybody inspiration, shape and form. In fact, as the Maharal says, people didn't even feel he has a zivug of his own because he understood that he was so connected to each family and to each person, both men and women. And that's why Chashdu Beishasish. The truth is, the Maharal, Moshe Rabbeinu is completely not that type of tzura that competes with the individual tzura. Moshe does have his own tzura, that's his wife, Tzipayru, who's from a different nation, Bechlal, not from the Jewish nation. But in terms of his tzura to the Jewish people, it's as an Hashem Klalis, which is aloof and sublime, and lets every person ultimately optimize themselves. That is the second interpretation that the Maharal gives us. There's the third interpretation the Maharal gives us in the Sivas Oilam, this was an element of accusing him of arrogance. Arrogance is similar to the Arias. You remain completely narcissistic, and therefore you could take somebody else's wife. Here again, they misunderstood Moshe Rabbeinu. The Megala Mukas comes and tells us that this happened to be a machloikas between Cain and Hevel. Cain felt that Hevel stole his wife, Tzipoira, because Tzipoira was really the twin that belonged to him, and this was the situation. So therefore, what happens here? What happens here at, uh, at the end? The truth is 
that all of these accusations were completely wrong. Moshe's Nevoah came directly from Hashem. It was a different level of Nevoah. It was not that they were like Moshe. He was really in a different status. And therefore for them to compare themselves to Moshe was ludicrous because he was really in a different state. That's number one. Number two, Moshe would never exchange their relationship with God. He was not coming in between their relationship with Hashem. On the contrary, Moshe's function is to reveal in each Jew how deep his own relationship with God is. Moshe is not a person who again interferes in their zivug. And Moshe is not the arrogant person on the contrary. What does he do when he hears all of this? He feels that now it's time to take a step down, to go even lower, to be able to connect to Klal Yisrael where they are and not let go from them in order to make sure that they remain connected forever to who they really are. To who they really are here, one sees the true meaning of who Moshe Rabbeinu was and what his leadership represented. Have a wonderful week. And Hatzlocher Rabba. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.